0: All right, so to start us off, I want to pose a question about marriage. Look, what is the basis of marriage from a social and emotional point? So we know that the spiritual basis of marriage, and that is God himself, right? It's his love and commitment toward his people and toward his church. Um, But what about socially and emotionally? You know, I've been married for almost six years, and I still find myself confused and confounded by the fact that we would willingly bind ourselves socially, spiritually, and emotionally to someone else based on little more than a promise and a sheet of paper. I mean, isn't that astounding? Now, for scripture, we know that there is more to it than that in that God is slowly and meticulously weaving each individual individual into a single entity while also remaining somehow distinctively separate. I mean, what a mystery that is, but what is to say that after like a year or five years or or 10 years that one of those persons won't just up and leave. And it's because of a promise. It's about trust. With that trust, we can dedicate our entire selves to someone else for the rest of our lives. And it's, it's a very vulnerable thing. And this trust is both a posture of the heart and it is a learned behavior. And it's something that my wife, Stephanie, and I have had to learn and are still learning to this day in both the large and in the small. So for instance, I am from the South, from a small textile town in Virginia. And in the South, for every one thing that is said, two different things are meant. So the classic example, and one I remembers I got older is, is that what you're wearing? (laughs) In the South, this question was tantamount to, don't even think about it. (laughs) Everything has layers of meaning in the South, and of which most of it is generally corrective somehow. (laughs) But Stephanie, on the other hand, comes from a Puerto Rican family in which one says what they mean, and they mean what they say. And for her, there was no other meaning than what was being said. So because of my upbringing, I had developed a suspicion toward conversation in general and will attempt to determine any underlying meaning in what is said. which tends to be problematic when one has no underlying meaning, (laughs) such as my wife. My suspicion was cause of much tension as misunderstanding on top of misunderstanding occurred as I was convinced that she was trying to covertly correct me in some way. I, I didn't trust her. And until I did, I was unable to truly love her as she needed to be. Well, this is the very question that Paul is addressing. Can God be trusted? More specifically, can God be trusted in two respects? One, can God be trusted individually and can God be trusted corporately? Trusted to keep the promise to his bride. Or as Paul puts it, has God rejected his people? Thankfully, Paul doesn't keep us in suspense, right? What does Paul say in response to has God rejected his people? What does he say? No, by no means. Now, according to Paul, God has emphatically, definitively, without contest, not rejected his people. And Paul gives us two sources by which we could know one experience and two scripture. And we will look at each in detail and then we will look at what this means for us, but before we begin, let me first talk about why Paul is asking this question in the first place. I mean, why does Paul seem to tangentially shift his gaze directly onto Israel? You know, in chapters one to eight, Paul lays out his great framework of salvation. The universality of sin, faith over works, reconciliation with God, freedom through the spirit from the law and new life in Christ as sons and daughters of God. So why would Paul shift his gaze onto Israel? Well, let me tell you, it is because Paul is gripped by anguish stating in the beginning of chapter nine, that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Wow, what powerful emotion. And how could he not feel such strong emotion when he is writing to a predominantly Gentile community who has responded to the, go- to, the, to the gospel with such enthusiasm, but his people have not. I and mean, after laying out the, the incomparably mighty works of God through Jesus, how could he not feel anguished? Paul is a writer that writes with great emotion to the point that he will just spontaneously break out in praise as in Galatians, but in this case, in great sorrow. So for him, this question is greatly personal, but not only is it personal, but it speaks to a greater question. Is Israel a lost cause? It is with this lens that Paul writes chapter 11. So when Paul asks, has God rejected his people? He is also asking, are his people too far gone for salvation? It is why Paul answers with such conviction by no means. So let's look at Paul's two sources for his great conviction, experience and scripture. So, firstly, experience. Paul states in verses 1 and 2 For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So, how does Paul know with such conviction that God has not rejected his people? Well, it's because Paul himself is a living breathing example of God's grace. We need to look no further than Paul to see God faithfully pursuing Israel. And Paul uplifts himself as an Israelite among Israelites, stating Galatians 1.14 that for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So zealous was Paul for the traditions of his fathers, that he would persecute the church, even overseeing the execution of the first martyr, Stephen. But what could turn a man from a zealous persecutor of the gospel to a zealous proclaimer of the gospel, a radical experience of God's power, and grace. It was on the road to Damascus that God revealed himself, asking Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that experience, Paul repented, was baptized and immediately proclaimed the gospel. It was in that experience that the revelation of who Jesus is literally came alive before him and in him by the Holy Spirit. And earlier in Romans, Paul states, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It was in that moment that God showed his great kindness to Paul, not condemning him for his deeds, but opening his eyes to the truth and setting him free. Kindness that leads to repentance is something that is not learned but it's something that is experienced. And Paul is an example. This is because God made us as fundamentally experiential beings. And God himself is someone who desires to be experienced. And this is made clear in scripture. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He appeared to Moses as a burning bush. I mean, how cool is that? He personally led his people through the Red Sea as a pillar of fire. He wrestled with Jacob and and most of all, he became flesh in Jesus and sent his spirit into our hearts. All that we would experience the transforming kindness of God. I mean, Paul gets this. He says, look at me, look at who I am and who I was and see how I've experienced the kindness of God. And if I could be transformed, then so could you and so can Israel. And Paul is able to see within himself through his very experience, not God's rejection, but his pursuit. If God could redeem a man like Paul, then there is no Israelite that God cannot redeem. So let's get back to our question. Can we trust God? does God reject his people? Well, what does our experience testify? In Paul's case, case, the answers are a resounding yes and by no means. And I imagine that if you look inside, you will see the same. Now let us turn to our second source scripture. In chapter 11, Paul turns to the example of Elijah. In the second part of verse two, he says, do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. So here Paul is referencing first Kings chapter 19, verse 10. Elijah has just laid the smackdown, totally owned, wrecked honed the prophets of Baal by a display of God's mighty power and is now fleeing for his life. The king is corrupt worshiping other gods and the queen Jezebel is actively seeking his life and Elijah thinks I alone am left. All the other prophets are dead and there is no one that worships God. Israel has forsaken its covenant with God. And for Elijah, he began to spare. So how does God respond? God responds with this in verse four, I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. So how does God respond? He responds with comfort. You are not alone. And in his despair, Elijah was unable to see his present situation. But what Elijah could not see God could. While his people had not been faithful, God was. And while the enemy was seeking the life of Elijah, God was preserving it. As the psalmist says, to you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. Scripture testifies. And this theme of a small, faithful group of people chosen by God runs throughout the Bible from beginning to end. Elijah is not alone throughout history. When the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When Israel was conquered, the temple destroyed and occupied by a foreign power, God raised up Nehemiah to lead the Jewish remnant with permission of the king, by the way, to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And and when Jesus was rejected and murdered by his own people, God called 12 men and a man named Saul. The key here is that for Paul, his experience with God drew him into relationship, but it is scripture that confirms his experience. Scripture is the barometer by which we gauge our experience. Scripture takes our experience and sets it into its context, both individually and corporately. Without the corporate voice of scripture, our experience can lead us into despair. As in the case with Elijah scripture is like the boat by which we navigate the waters of our existence and our experience is the wind in its sails. Both are equally important without a radical experience with Jesus, Paul's investigations into the scriptures only hardened his heart and led him astray. So from scripture, what can we say about God? Can we trust him? Yeah, we can. Does he reject his people? By no means. God has not rejected Israel, but instead it was God that preserved it. We see this in the experience of Paul and in the story of Elijah. But what does this mean for us here? Well, do you trust God today? Do you feel like God has rejected you? Well, I'm here to tell you that definitively he has not. That God can be trusted. Through the evidence of Scripture, God's kindness is on clear display. There is story after story of God rescuing out of despair people who have done nothing but reject Him and worship other gods with this being most clear in the person of Jesus. And we are no different than Israel in that regard. It is all too often and all too easy to feel just like Elijah. Dejected and rejected by God and by his church. We can feel alone. But while Elijah was pursued by his enemies. And let me tell you that there are enemies. It was not his enemies that found him, but God himself. And through a radical experience of God, Elijah was comforted by the good news. That God had not forsaken Israel and he was not alone. If you have never had an experience of God's unmatching kindness, I'm here to tell you that you can and you already have. You do not need to be like a prophet like Elijah to experience God himself, nor does your experience need to be as intense as Paul's. I mean, God called 12 ordinary men, most of them fishermen, to be his first followers. We can all experience God in the small and in the large things. We can experience God in the provision of our food the loving relationships that we have, and even the air we breathe and the beauty of the earth we see. The scripture tells us that all good things come from God and God is someone who likes to give good things. I mean, these good things are not contingent things. They're not based on our stars. They are unconditional things and there is nothing greater than God himself. But you must ask Tanner, how do I know if I am experiencing God? Well, we can return to our two sources. Look at scripture and listen to the experiences of others who often read scripture and live like Jesus does. Through the experience of others we know and, um, yeah, who know and live like God, you can see how they experience God and in turn can help you understand your experiences. So I would encourage you to speak with two people and listen to their story about how they have experienced God. Listen to them and let it shine light into your own story. But most importantly, I would encourage you to pray to God for an experience with him Invite him into your life and see how he shows up. God wants nothing more than to come to you. Amen.